As Israel's war against Hamas enters its third week, what's the latest from inside Israel? How are the people of Gaza coping? What impact is the war having on the rest of the Middle East? Things that might not be obvious to many of us. This is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger with Israel expert Dr. Charlie Dyer. And you know, Charlie, as this whole war unfolds, many of us wonder what the future holds for Israel. While some things are uncertain, the Bible gives us an outline of what will happen in the last days. You're right, John, and that's why our friends at Life and Messiah recently hosted a prophecy conference focused specifically on this topic, Israel and the Church Living in the Last Days. They're now making the videos of the conference available for early access exclusively to the Land and the Book listeners. You'll hear from many knowledgeable speakers on this topic, including Moody Radio host Michael Radelnik and me, Charlie Dyer. These encouraging and informative videos will help you better understand God's future plans and how we can be actively waiting. To get access to this video series, visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button to sign up. That's lifeinmessiah.org. Well, Charlie, as Israel's war against Hamas enters its third week, what impact is it having on both Israel and the people of Gaza? Now, sadly, one of the main impacts is a rising death toll on both sides. Uh, the major news event Tuesday was the supposed Israeli bombing of a hospital that was said to have killed hundreds. It was later shown to be a rocket launched by Islamic Jihad against Israel that misfired and landed in the parking lot of the hospital. Uh, Israel is still traumatized by the reports and accounts of what actually happened on October 7, and now it finds itself having to also fight a public relations war with Hamas, whose false narrative was uncritically picked up and amplified by other media, including some in our own country. But back to the impact on the people themselves, Israel views the events of October 7 in light of the Holocaust and the slaughter of six and a half million Jews, something most Israelis thought would never happen again. And then discovering that 200 others were taken as hostages adds to their anger and grief. Uh, there's been a lot of finger pointing in Israel at the government for allowing this to happen, at the military for not being prepared, and of course at Hamas for the evil they unleashed. Sadly, the ordinary people of Gaza have now also experienced the horrors of war, electricity and water cut off, food becoming scarce, hospitals and clinics overrun with those injured. But here's the main difference. Hamas deliberately went after women and children in Israel. Their plan called for them to murder as many women and children as possible. Israel has tried to avoid hitting women and children whenever possible. And that's in spite of Hamas's storing rockets underneath homes and in mosques and in schools and firing them from near hospitals, which is what we saw on Tuesday. Israel has declared war on Hamas, and their goal is to eliminate Hamas's fighters and their government. I don't believe Israel will stop before Hamas is eliminated, but the war's impact is being felt now by the people on both sides and will continue to be felt for a long time to come. There'll be large parts of Gaza that need to be rebuilt, and Israel's border communities will also need to be rebuilt. There's an impact on the economies of both areas as well, but right now, the focus in Israel is on a concerted effort to wipe out Hamas, and that might take time. This is The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Dr. Charlie Dyer, our host. I'm John Geiger. We're focusing in, of course, on the war with Hamas. Well, Hamas's surprise attack highlighted fundamental flaws in Israel's assumptions about Hamas itself and about Israel's own military preparedness, as you've hinted at. What has been discovered so far and what's likely to change in the future? Israel assumed Hamas wasn't prepared for and wasn't seeking an armed conflict so soon after the last war. 
Just a week before the war, Israel's National Security Council head said that Hamas was still deterred and weakened from their previous conflicts with Israel. So how'd they get it so wrong? Well, first, they put too much faith in technology. Two years ago, they destroyed Hamas's attack tunnels and installed their so-called iron wall to keep all future attack tunnels from being dug. They also installed high-tech sensors to keep tabs on Hamas from towers on Israel's side of the border. Hamas's goal of launching a major attack on Israel never wavered. They simply looked for alternative ways to accomplish it. They used snipers to shoot out the cameras, keeping tabs on their activities. And then they used explosives and bulldozers to punch holes in the wall. They also dug some new tunnels under the wall, and they trained motorized glider pilots to fly over it. And they used drones to carry bombs to take out some of the other high-tech devices. Israel didn't have enough forces guarding the border, so when the high-tech defenses were disabled, it took hours before they realized the extent of what was really happening. Second, Israel apparently chose not to take bits of information they did receive seriously. They knew about meetings between officials from Iran, Hezbollah, and Hamas. They had some information on attempted bombings of the wall, on drones, on the testing of rockets shot into the Mediterranean, and on the introduction of motorized gliders. They even had vague, incomplete reports about Hamas planning something a few hours before the actual attack took place. But they never connected the dots because they couldn't envision how such an attack was even possible. A frightening realization is that the same high-tech approach has been used on Israel's northern border with Hezbollah. Though nothing is being said publicly, I suspect Israel's already evaluating the changes that will need to be made on both borders to guard against similar attacks in the future. What impact is the war having on Israel and the rest of the Middle East that might not be so obvious to most listeners? Well, one key impact, at least temporarily, is that it helped unite the people of Israel in a common struggle against Hamas. A national emergency government was finally formed when Benny Gantz's National Unity Party joined the coalition. A smaller war cabinet was formed to direct the conflict with Hamas that includes Netanyahu, Defense Minister Gallant, and Gantz, along with two other observers. This brings together key members of the Knesset who have extensive, high-level military experience to oversee the war effort. As part of the agreement, no legislation in the Knesset and no government resolutions will be advanced during the war that aren't related to managing the war. This means the, the fights over judicial reform and the changes to the draft law for the ultra-Orthodox are being temporarily set aside. A second impact the war is having on Israel is economic. Tourism screeched to a halt. And so have many businesses, since more than 300,000 reservists were called up to active duty. The communities along the border with Gaza produce much of the vegetables consumed by Israelis, and they're concerned that a good portion of the current crop could be lost as the towns remain abandoned and as foreign workers flee the country. And finally, another impact the war is having is on the decision of Saudi Arabia to freeze the ongoing peace negotiations with Israel. What's unclear is what will happen now that the talks have been postponed. Almost certainly, they're not going to resume until sometime after the fighting ends. Washington's hope is that they can restart and move toward a conclusion before we head too far into 2024 when national elections will make any negotiations and subsequent Senate approval far more difficult. But all those negotiations right now are being held in abeyance. Well, moving away from the war to another story, a U.S. tourist toppled not one but two ancient statues in the Israel Museum before being subdued by guards. I want to know what prompted his actions. I mean, why do that? And what impact could this have on others visiting the museum? 
Well, when the story first appeared, it sounded like the individual might have been an Orthodox Jew since he claimed the statues were, quote, in violation of the Torah. But as the story unfolded, it now looks like this might have been an overzealous Christian, though we still don't know for certain uh, because the war has just pushed that story off to the side. The media kept referring to him, though, as a, quote, U.S. tourist and a, quote, American citizen. A follow-up story suggested he might have had Jerusalem syndrome, which is an actual psychological disorder that can so overwhelm a person emotionally during a visit to Israel that he or she somehow thinks they're a prophet sent on a mission by God, in this case, to smash all the idols. Likely, the individual has been confined to psychiatric care before being sent home. I suspect he'll also be charged with vandalism, and he'll be required to pay for the damages. I'm also concerned about the impact this could have on others who visit the museum. You know, right now, visitors there are able to get up close and personal with these rare treasures. To stand 18 inches from the ossuary or the the bone box of Caiaphas the high priest or the sarcophagus of Herod the Great or the inscription of Pontius Pilate found at Caesarea, well, they're simply amazing. I hope they don't start keeping visitors back from these discoveries or Worse yet, start encasing them in glass or some other covering. There was a time in the past when they didn't permit photography. Now visitors can wander through and get in close to take photos of these priceless artifacts. And John, my personal hope is that that can continue. Charlie, in the moment we have remaining, we hear an awful lot about praying for the war in Israel. A couple of ideas for prayer. What can we pray to pray more effectively? Well, I think we can start by praying for the people there, for the innocent civilians, we might call them, on both sides, for those who live in Gaza, for those who live in Israel. As this war goes on, it's going to become even more uh, stressful on both sides, and we need to pray for their safety. We need to pray for wisdom on the part of Israel's leadership, that they make good and right decisions. And we're told to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Uh, We need to pray that this can end as quickly as possible with as uh, little loss in human life as possible. All right, practical tips for prayer as this war unfolds. Up next, have you ever considered that God wants to use you to draw Jewish people to himself? That's next on The Land and the Book. Have you ever considered that God wants to use you to draw Jewish people to himself? Actually, the biblical concept is much stronger than merely draw people in. What do I mean by that? Well, let's talk about it next. This is The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger, and speaking of drawing Jewish people toward the Lord, listen to this idea. Well, let's face it, we love to let ourselves off the hook especially when it comes to sharing Jesus. So maybe you've got a Jewish friend, but you're saying, you know, I'm I'm pretty sure they've heard the gospel before. What do you think? Levi Hazen is with Life in Messiah. Uh, That thinking, I suspect, is wrong. Yeah, John, this misconception is believed by a lot of us. The reality is that most Jewish people have never heard a clear presentation of the gospel. In fact, statistically speaking, the Jewish people are considered an unreached people group, with fewer than 2% worldwide believing in Jesus. Sure, many Jewish people are familiar with the name of Jesus and know the general concept of a church, but a surprising number of our Jewish friends incorrectly believe that Jesus came and started the Catholic Church. He's often viewed as the first pope, even. Others wrongly believe that Jesus came for the Gentiles, and he didn't really care about the Jewish people. And still others 
that Jesus was a good Jewish boy who took a wrong turn. (laughs) What I try to figure out when I'm conversing with my Jewish friends is exactly where their particular knowledge of the gospel is. And the best way to do that is by asking them questions. And you can't do that unless you're having a conversation. So it begins there, right? That's right. Levi Hazen is with Life in Messiah. Well, back to my question as we open this segment. Have you ever considered that God wants to use you to draw Jewish people to himself? It's a question we're about to put to today's guest, Roy Schwartz. Roy was born and raised in an Orthodox Jewish home in New York City. But at the age of 13, Roy received his bar mitzvah in the Orthodox tradition. And a few years later, though, something unpredictable happened. While traveling across the country, Roy, you met some Christians who demonstrated God's kindness and his love. What was going on in your mind as you're, as you're meeting these people? Well, first of all, they had an incredible peace. They had confidence. They actually believed the Bible, and they loved Jewish people. And, you know, I'd never really encountered that from Jesus' people, that they were excited that I was Jewish. I mean, well, I grew up in New York, and if you weren't Jewish, you were Catholic. And so... The idea of Jesus and Jewish and Christians liking Jews, it just it just didn't compute. I you went had to no military school for that. Yeah, I went to military school in North Carolina, and um, there were three things they disliked more than anything. I was two out of the three <laughs> from New York and Jewish. And so, you know, I always thought Christianity was antithetical to Judaism and Jewish people. There was an inbred hatred of Jews and just over history. My mother fled Germany because of Hitler and uh, his campaign against the Jews, and they justified it as being Christian. You know, the, on the belt buckle of the SS was written for Christ and country. And so, you know, you, you're just raised in the Jewish milieu that Christianity is not healthy for us Jews. And here were Christians in the Midwest who were genuinely excited that I was Jewish. Thank God you're Jewish. Our Bible's Jewish. If it weren't for you Jewish people, we wouldn't have a Bible or a Messiah. And that was just, you know, I didn't get that. And so they said, you ask the God of Israel if Jesus is the Messiah. Well, I, I didn't openly ask that, but I sort of thought of, you know, you know, if there's anything here, show me. And I never expected anything to happen. <laughs> and things started happening. I mean, so I saw the movie Godspell and Jesus Christ Superstar. And, uh, you know, of course, as a Christian, you know, you look at that and say, you know, how can anything good come out of that? But, <laughs> but for me, I mean, here was a nonviolent revolutionary. I mean, I, I was in, this was the early 70s where, you know, anti-war and protest and, and uh, hypocrisy. And, and so here's a nonviolent revolutionary man of peace and love. And he was Jewish. I mean, I never thought he was Jewish. I always thought he was Catholic. Hmm. And so with that, I realized that maybe I had prejudged Jesus based on my mother's experiences and my father's experiences and my experiences with what I thought were Christians. And then I became aware that there was a difference between a Christian and a Christian. And so eventually you did receive Jesus. What was that like? Well, it was scary. First thing, it was embarrassing Mm. to accept that Gentiles were right. (laughs) I mean, it was humbling and upsetting. And then once I had done that and started reading the Bible, I got really angry that as I read the Bible, the majority of Christians saw Christianity as anything but Jewish. Mm. And so, you know, I was confused and angry. And that's when I I was introduced to, uh, through a traveling evangelist who came to the church I was attending, about 
Chosen People Ministries, American Board of Missions to the Jews. And he told me that uh, you should contact them, that you're not the only Jewish person who's come to faith in Jesus. And in fact, many of us were coming to faith. And so I contacted our offices here in Chicago, and they shared with me about this faith, that it's Jewish. And so with that understanding, that helped me to begin to sort out what it is to be Jewish and a follower of Jesus. And so I needed that, and that helped me in my journey. Well, you've gone on to many things, including graduating from Moody Bible Institute, writing the book Where Jesus Walked, and right now you are pastoring a church on an interim basis in Manhattan. Lots going on in your world. But you want to talk about something in Romans eleven eleven, where it speaks of the nation of Israel asking, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But rather through their fall, Salvation has come unto the Gentiles to provoke them to jealousy. What's the context of this verse, Roy? Give us the big picture. Well, from my understanding of it, I I see Paul saying, actually rebuking the church. It begins in Romans chapter 9, where he deals with the Jewish issue, the Jewish question. Uh, The Romans thought themselves as those who replaced Israel, that God was through with the Jews and that we are now in charge, as if God had cast off Israel. And so Paul lays out theologically the purpose of Israel and the position that Israel is in. God, yes, has cast them off because of their pride, because of their arrogance, because of uh, their um, hardness of heart. And God brought you to faith so that he would frustrate Israel, who prided themselves on being righteous in the law, because they were very good at law. They were very good at uh, religion. They were better at religion than anybody, and they had, a, you know, they had it down. But the Romans now, you know, rejoicing in who they were, uh, started seeing themselves as better than the Jews, as if God was, had cast them off. Mm. And so I think there's a worldview within Christianity that Christianity is anything but Jewish, that it is separate from Jewish. They don't know the Jewish roots. And so Paul explains that Christianity is Jewish, that you have been grafted into a Jewish tree. And as I understand it, and as I share it with others, that as we understand the Jewishness of Christianity helps us understand the grace of God, the love of God, the law of the Lord, that it is holy, righteous, and good, but the law is weak. And so as we understand the Jewishness of Christianity and the joy of the law, we are able to impart to others that uh, there is great joy in the Messiah because what the law points us to is helplessness. We can't do it, but it's a Jewish faith. And so when we convey that our hope and that our faith is a Jewish faith, that causes both Christians, Gentiles, and Jews to ask the question, what do you mean it's a Jewish faith? Because both Gentiles and Jews think that it's anything but Jewish. And so it provokes lost Gentiles, it provokes Jews, and it focuses on a dialogue that what in the world is God doing? You know, And we live in a day where Israel is a continual source of confusion and irritation and wonderment to the world. Roy Schwartz was born and raised in New York City and is currently the interim pastor of Chosen People Ministries Congregation in Manhattan. You uh, spoke a few minutes ago, Roy, about being shocked, embarrassed, humbled to learn that the Gentiles, quote, were right. 
But, you know, at the heart of this discussion is the need for Gentile Christians to understand that Christianity is Jewish. Why do we Gentiles not get this? What's the problem? What's the roadblock? Same problem we had, pride. Hmm. We hate the idea that this faith is a Jewish faith and that somehow the Jews are special. Mm -hmm. And we don't like that. You know, I didn't like Gentiles suggesting that because they believed in Jesus and were Christian, that they were special. You know, if I could just go out on a limb, I'm going to suggest a big part of the problem is what happens or doesn't happen in our pulpits, in our sermons, in evangelical churches. We don't hear a whole lot about it, our faith being a Jewish faith. Right. And I don't blame pastors because it's just, I mean, from Augustine forward, from 325 on, Christianity has been taught that it is not Jewish, that the Jews are the problem, hmm. that Judaism is legalism, is darkness, and so we have to forsake all of that. The fact that the New Covenant is a Jewish covenant. Let me ask you, going now to the Jewish side of things, how is that attractive to Jewish people? Well, how is that possible that the New Covenant is a Jewish covenant? You know, we, we don't understand that that's a Jewish teaching in Jeremiah 31. Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with them when I brought them out of the land. But Christians don't know it, so they can't explain it. <laughs> From Moody Radio, this is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger in the studio with Pastor Roy Schwartz of Chosen People Ministries. Let me ask you, Roy, what does it look like for God's people to be secure, confident in this truth? How do we right now maybe lack confidence in your assessment that the new covenant is a Jewish covenant? Well, I guess it's just simply believing God's word and seeing it, the unity between old and new, that there isn't a bifurcation between old covenant faith and new covenant faith, that, that the hope of Israel has always been the Messiah. The hope of Israel has always been this faith in the coming Messiah. And I don't think we can explain it and articulate it because we're not taught it. We put it in a—that the church is Israel and that Israel is not Israel, that the Israel of God is Christians, and that Jews have no part in this until they become Christians, and that means forsaking everything Jewish. Mm. And so it's just us versus them. They don't see the unity. All right, so if that's a negative example, what's a positive example? What does it look like for Gentile believers to do this well, to provoke Jewish people to jealousy? Well, I think uh, celebrating Passover in the light of Messiah. I think celebrating the Jewish holidays. I think Christians should celebrate Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur in the light of Messiah. I think they should celebrate all the feasts of Israel, that they foreshadow the great work of God. I mean, can you imagine if Jews see Gentiles actually honoring God's appointed times, celebrating Jewish holy days? I mean, God never abrogated the law. God never abrogated the holidays. Those are holy days that God mm -hmm. forever set up. These are my appointed times. When did he abrogate that? Well, Christianity says, well, it's bupkis. It means nothing. It's, uh, it has no purpose, no meaning, except, you know, if we focus on Christ and remove it from its Jewish roots. 
But when Christians see the unity, when they see how the holy days foreshadow, well, for example, Passover, our redemption, first fruits, the resurrection, Pentecost, uh, the beginning of the church and, and the outpouring of the Spirit of God, the harvest period, which is what we're in right now, Rosh Hashanah, the blowing of the trumpet, the rapture of the church, uh, Yom Kippur, the renewal of the covenant with Israel, when all Israel shall be saved, they'll look upon me whom they have pierced and mourned for an only son, and the Feast of Tabernacles, when all the nations, Zechariah says, will come to Jerusalem and celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, and it will be a party of all parties. As we Christians understand that in the light of the gospel, that will provoke Jewish people to jealousy and bless the church. So what's a best-case scenario here? What if there was a widespread movement among Gentile believers in America to provoke their Jewish friends to jealousy over Jesus? What could happen? Well, I think there'd be revival in the church personally. I think Gentiles will find great revival, and I think Jews will find faith, and they will fulfill their destiny, their calling, to be God's priests among the nations. You know, we have gifts, we Jews. I mean, you know, it's no coincidence that Oppenheimer, I just saw the movie Oppenheimer, there's no coincidence that the two key figures there were both Jews. There's no coincidence that Jews are major in finance, in law, in whatever... Hollywood. I mean, it's a Jewish, you know, I mean, it's not totally Jewish, but I mean, we are good at what we do. We have a zeal for God, but we don't know God. How are we going to know God unless we are presented the gospel? Well, what we see is a goyesha, mayonnaise, and, and white bread organization as opposed to being, you know, rye bread and mustard. And uh, I mean, that's that's a cultural thing. As I mean, it's not Jewish. It's goyish. It's alien. It's foreign. It's not connected to Jesus, the Jew. It's anything but Jewish. It's Gentile. And Christianity is Jewish. Christianity is Jewish. Time to connect the two, it seems to me. I think so. And I think we'll have a revival if we do that. That's Roy Schwartz provoking Jewish people to jealousy our conversation today. Hey, learn more about Roy and his ministry at Chosen People Ministries when you visit our website, thelandandthebook.org. Are you looking forward to our next segment? I am. It's Charlie Dyer back with a fresh set of Bible questions from listeners just like you. It's next on The Land and the Book. remember Radio Shack, you might remember their last slogan. If you've got questions, we've got answers. Well, that's what this next segment is about here at The Land and the Book. I'm John Gaker with our host, Charlie Dyer. And Charlie, many of us wonder what the future holds for Israel. And while some things are uncertain, the Bible gives us an outline of what will happen in the last days. You're right. And that's why our friends at Life and Messiah recently hosted a prophecy conference focused specifically on this topic, Israel and the Church living in the last days. They're now making the videos of the conference available for early access exclusively to the Land in the Book listeners. You'll hear from many knowledgeable speakers on this topic, including Moody Radio host Michael Radelnik and me, Charlie Dyer. Those encouraging and informative videos will help you better understand God's plans and how we can be actively waiting. To get access to this video series, visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button to sign up. That's lifeinmessiah.org. 
All right, we'll dig right into today's question, starting with this one from Alice. She says, I'm preparing to help the kids at my church memorize Psalm 23 this fall, and suddenly I realize that at the beginning of the psalm, the subject is the Lord and He. But by verse 5, it says, you prepare a table before me. Why the change from him to you and back? Well, I see two keys that can help. The first is the fact that verse 4, especially that last half, serves as a transition. The abrupt transition uh, from referring to God in the third person, he, to the second person, you, is intentional. It makes David's words to God even more direct and intense. Uh, David then switches back to referring to God in the third person in the final verse because he again focuses more on himself and the blessing he'll receive from the Lord. Now, the second key is the fact that David uses two different illustrations in the psalm. In the first half of the psalm, the focus is on the Lord as the good shepherd watching over his sheep. In the second half of the psalm, the imagery changes to that of David being invited into the banqueting hall of God, who's the gracious host and protector. This question from Brian, he takes us to 2 Kings 22, verse 1, where we're told that Josiah became king at eight years of age. How could a child justifiably be appointed ruler of anything? Now, he became a good king as he aged, but I don't grasp the wisdom of an eight-year-old being in charge. Your thoughts? Anyone with an eight-year-old understands the nature of this question. What? Uh, (laughs) Well, there are actually two boy kings in Judah. Josiah was the second, and a guy named Joash was the first. And I see elements that are common to both. In the time of Joash, there was a wicked queen named Athaliah, who temporarily became ruler of Judah to secure her place on the throne. She tried to kill every male descendant of David. Josiah was just a baby at the time, but he was rescued and hidden for six years. And then when he was seven, the high priest led a coup and placed Joash on the throne. Now, in the case of young King Josiah, his father was only 22 when he became king, and he was killed after only reigning for two years. Uh, To maintain stability, the people of the land made Josiah his son king in his place. But it's not just that both kings were young. In the case of seven-year-old Joash, the high priest Jehoiada became the power behind the throne. He protected the child. He instituted religious reforms. He chose the the brides for the king. In fact, when that high priest ultimately died, he was buried in the tombs of the kings because he had functioned as acting king on behalf of this young king Joash. I see something similar in Josiah's case. Though not as many details are recorded, we see a very young king, Josiah, Uh, sending the royal scribe in the temple to institute repairs. Later, Shaphan, this royal scribe, and his son, as well as Hilkiah the priest, are connected together. So I believe those royal advisors were actually an inner circle, and they helped the young king and helped guide royal affairs until the king was old enough and wise enough to rule alone. So in both cases, these young children were selected because they were apparently the only son from the line of David qualified to sit on the throne. And in spite of their young age, Each was then guided by older godly men, either a senior royal advisor or the high priest, to help keep them on target until they were mature enough to rule on their own. Dr. Charlie Dyer welcomes your questions anytime. You can email him at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Mark says, for years, we rarely missed your program Saturdays on WCRF in Cleveland. Since finding your podcast, though, we never miss it. We even listen twice while cruising in the Pacific. I love that dedication. Well, here's Mark's question, Charlie. It's about the Midianites. Numbers 31 verse 7 says, Israel fought against Midian and killed every man. But by the time of Gideon, the Midianites were again a threat, enough that Gideon recruited an army of 32,000 to fight them. 
Does the Bible give us a hint as to how the Midianites were able to regroup? Yeah, I need to give just a little background. The Midianites descended from Abraham's later wife or concubine, Keturah, through her son Midian. And uh, Abraham gave these other children gifts, but it didn't include the promised land. He sent them off, it says, to the east. So the Midianites became nomads. They occupied part of the region we know today as Jordan and western Saudi Arabia and even part of the Sinai Peninsula. You know, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, was a priest of Midian. Now, to answer the question, though, the Midianites mentioned in Numbers 31 are likely part of the group that happened to live near the Moabites over east of the uh, Jordan Valley. Uh, The king of Moab approached them, got them to come in and uh, bring Balaam to try and curse Israel. And then later, the Midianites and Moabites were involved together in the seduction and immorality by a Midianite woman that ended up killing 24,000 Israelites. So God told Moses then, treat the Midianites as enemies and kill them. In light of all that, I take Israel's war with Midian in Numbers 31 to be focused specifically on those Midianites who lived near the Moabites. Uh, Think of it east of the Jordan River and the Dead Sea area. Uh, One detail leads me to this conclusion because it mentions the five kings of Midian in chapter 31. And later in Joshua 13, those same five are connected to the land Joshua allotted to the tribe of Reuben. Uh, The southern border of that was the Arnon River. Now, the Midianites were mentioned in the book of Joshua chapter 6 were also uh, another part of that group, probably scattered over a wider area living south or east of the Reuben's tribal allotment. So really, uh, the Midianites who joined with the Amalekites later on in Judges 6 were a different segment of that tribe. Todd says, I've been spending some time in Lamentations 3 in recent days. Could you comment on Jeremiah's change of perspective in verses 21 through 33? What exactly brightens the prophet's outlook so much? Well, I I love Lamentations chapter 3. Jeremiah is sharing his problems, but he does it in a way that connects uh, what Israel was feeling. Uh, So he starts by telling the the experiences he had. He felt afflicted and besieged and chained. He says he was devastated. He was embarrassed. He was forsaken. He was gloomy. And each of those, which were uh, an acrostic in Hebrew, the people listening would go, wow, we felt just the same way. But then when he reaches verse 21, he says he discovered how to find hope in spite of all those problems. In fact, beginning in verse 22, he switches temporarily from the singular to the plural. And I believe at that point, he's pointing the people and saying, in essence, you need to learn what I learned. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The word for love, hesed, refers to God's loving kindness. Uh, Jeremiah learned that God's loyal love remained true, even when Jeremiah didn't sense it. Uh, It came from God's compassions or his mercies. In essence, Jeremiah is saying God's compassionate care will never end. In fact, I love when he says it's new every morning. He's reminding them just like the manna in the wilderness, God's new mercies are there every day to guide us through that day. And uh, in essence, Jeremiah found that he could move from despair to hope by refusing to focus on his problems and instead focus on the character and goodness of God who was present even in his dark days. Renate's question focuses on the words of Jesus to the Church of Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3. Who or what is the synagogue of the adversary? And are the words, the time of trial coming upon the whole world, a reference to the rapture? Well, in regard to the synagogue of the adversary, or translations have the synagogue of Satan, because that's the word that's used there as well. John's referring to unbelieving Jews in Philadelphia who are actively opposing the church there, even to the point of persecuting believers. Uh, John refers to him as the synagogue of Satan because ultimately it was Satan who was prompting their actions. 
As Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they can't see the light of the gospel. And that's what was happening there in that town. Now, the hour of testing or trial actually is uh, not a reference to the rapture, but to the tribulation period. Now, it can indirectly refer to the rapture in this sense. Jesus is promising to keep these believers from the very time period coming to test those who dwell on the earth. Uh, Rather than uh, keeping them through the tribulation or in the tribulation, Jesus promises to keep them from that period, and he'll do that by taking them from the earth just before the tribulation begins. Last question from Linny. The term son of man is used to describe Jesus in Daniel, and Jesus calls himself the son of man in the New Testament. However, God calls Ezekiel son of man. Are the terms the same in Hebrew? Obviously, Ezekiel is not Jesus, but it perplexes me. Thoughts? Yeah, the the terms functionally are the same. Daniel was in Aramaic. Uh, Ezekiel is in uh, Hebrew. But in Ezekiel, I think God's using the phrase to stress Ezekiel's humanity as opposed to the glory of God. God shows up in his glory, and then Ezekiel is described as the Son of Man. In Daniel 7, I think it's a picture of the physical description of the Messiah. Uh, That is, he has human form as he comes before the Ancient of Days to receive the kingdom. And in the New Testament, I think Jesus is using the term as a messianic designation coming right out of Daniel chapter 7. All right, great set of questions today. And if you'd like to get yours to us, you can email at any time at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Well, Charlie's back with his devotional next here on The Land and the Book. When most of us think of Israel, we don't think of waterfalls, but they've got them. Hey, welcome back to The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. One of the most famous of those waterfalls is based in a place called En Gedi. It's a long hike, and Charlie, we're headed there next? Uh, We are heading there next, John. All right, his devotional, the third in his series, Aha Moments in Israel. Before we get to that, though, this look at the Holy Land from somebody who's traveled there and wanted to share this perspective with you and me right now. Hi, I'm Paul Lang. I uh, actually was invited to come with my wife uh, by friends of ours who have been before with Moody, And we turned them down twice, but they prevailed on us, and we did agree to go. And it is a life-changing experience. I think the reality of what God is doing in such a small place, again and again and again, all throughout history, just to save us, is just the most remarkable thing. And then to see that history unfold in front of us, and to hear about it from uh, experts, Uh, It is just a remarkable thing. It will change me forever. Charlie, we're enjoying this series of devotionals you've titled Aha Moments. Again, these are times that just stick in your memory forever. Is that right? That's right, John. You know, this four-week series of these aha moments are the times during my early trips when seeing the land caused me to understand the Bible in a fresh way. You'll often hear people say the Bible came alive during a trip to Israel. Well, actually, the Bible was always the living Word of God. What people mean by that, though, is they suddenly understood the message of the Bible in a fresh, new way through its geography and its historical background when they saw those places for themselves. But today, we're hiking up, actually, we're going to hike past the waterfall of Engedi to an ancient temple built on a plateau partway up the towering cliffs. Because of timing and logistics, 
I take most groups today to the field school near the entrance of Engedi. From that overlook, they can see the waterfall in the distance, and they have a better than average chance of seeing ibex from up there. The Israeli school kids hiking up the valley below are having a fun time, but all the shouting and splashing in the water drive the ibex out of the valley and up in our direction. But our goal today is not to look for ibex, but to retrace the steps I took on that first trip so many years ago. The hike to the waterfall actually changes every year. The winter rains can surge down the canyon, rearranging boulders and washing out previous pathways. The trek up the canyon requires some climbing, some scrambling along wet limestone pathways, and some rest stops, cleverly disguised as, quote, photo opportunities. We made it to the waterfall, but we're not done. Not even close. Partway down the return path, we veer off and start climbing up the side of the canyon along a switchback, a pathway that has us scrambling over rocks as we use both hands and feet to push our way onward and upward. Pausing every so often to take a water break, we finally reach a relatively flat area with a spectacular view of the Dead Sea. And there in front of us are the remains of a Calcolithic temple, a pagan shrine from early in the history of the region. I marvel at the dedication of these ancient people who built their temple in an area that was rather inaccessible. You know, why didn't they build it down below, closer to the flowing spring of water at Engedi? Why come way up here? Was it a sign of their dedication and devotion, or was it driven by concerns over security, a need to find a place that was less accessible? And that's when our instructor and guide makes two observations that change my entire focus. First, Uh, He had us look up at the cliffs still towering over us. After all that climbing, we're only about a third of the way up the cliffs looming over the Dead Sea. The pathway continues to zigzag its way up the side of the canyon until it finally reaches the top. And then it continues through the Judean wilderness toward Tekoa, Bethlehem, and finally Jerusalem. The leader then recounted the story from 2 Chronicles 20, where three nations from the eastern side of the Dead Sea gathered at Engedi to launch a surprise attack against Jerusalem. King Jehoshaphat called a fast and prayed to God for deliverance. God sent their unprepared army out by the wilderness of Tekoa to the overlook at the ascent of Ziz that led up from Engedi. Well, that's the name of the pathway we've been walking on. It's hard to believe this was an actual roadway known and used by those in the Old Testament, but it was. Jehoshaphat's forces arrived to discover the invading army had destroyed one another. Suddenly, the reality of this spot hit me like a thunderbolt. This was the most direct route from Engedi to Jerusalem. That also made it the most direct route between Moab and Jerusalem. When Elimelech left Bethlehem with his wife Naomi and two sons, he would have traveled from Bethlehem to Tekoa to the ascent of Ziz, down to Engedi, south along the shore of the Dead Sea to near Masada, and then across the Dead Sea via the Lisan, or tongue of land that sticks out into that body of water. From there, he would have climbed the hills into the land of Moab. Elimelech and his family walked down the pathway I've been on. But wait, if that's the case, then what about when Naomi and Ruth returned from Moab to Bethlehem? In our minds, we magically transport them from one place to another. But in reality, they had to make that trek alone, likely on foot, carrying everything they owned. They filled up their water skins from a spring near the Dead Sea on the Moab side. Then they crossed the Lisan and hiked another 10 miles to reach the next water source at Engedi. A total of 18 or 19 miles between water stops. A six-hour hike along the shore of the Dead Sea with only the water they could carry. 
but we're not done. Once they reached Engedi, they had to climb the ascent of Ziz. I suspect they stopped to rest before continuing on, but with few supplies, they couldn't stay long. They then hiked up the steep, rocky pathway I just climbed, wearing sandals rather than the hiking boots I had on. And I'm only a third of the way up. They kept climbing, zigzagging back and forth along the narrow pathway to the top. And then it would have taken at least another day of walking through the rugged wilderness until they reached Tekoa and eventually Bethlehem. Five or six days of brutal hiking over treacherous terrain with limited opportunities to refill their water skins. Land with dangerous animals. Remember, just a few years later, David had to fight off lions and bears in this same general area. The temperature at the time of the barley harvest, which is when they arrived in Bethlehem, would have been in the mid-70s during the day, but falling into the low 50s at night. And the sun down here at Engedi would have been intense. Is it any wonder that when Naomi finally reached Bethlehem, she said in chapter 1, Don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant in Hebrew. Call me Mara, which means bitter. She was physically exhausted, emotionally spent, and spiritually drained. And standing here, I was able to sympathize with her. I was already tired, and we'd only hiked a fraction of the distance they did. And then I thought of Ruth. She didn't have to make this journey. Naomi had released her from any obligation. Your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her, Naomi said. But Ruth's tenacious determination and pledge of loyalty and faithfulness set her apart. Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. Those words make for great wedding vows, but take them out of a church scented with flowers and candles and put them out here in the hot, harsh wilderness. That was my aha moment. Ruth understood what was likely going to be her fate, a brutal hike to a strange land where she would be viewed as a foreigner, hard work for meager results while her mother-in-law was alive, likely followed by a life of struggle and loneliness until her own death. But she made a vow to be faithful to her mother-in-law, her new home, and people, and their God. And the only thing that would stop her from remaining faithful would be death itself. Ruth's words took on a whole new meaning out here in the wilderness of Engedi. So what's the takeaway for you? We live in a day when people take obligations lightly. We walk away from promises, from commitments to our jobs, from loan obligations, even from marriage vows. And then we wonder why society seems to be crumbling. There are times when life resembles the wilderness of Engedi, hard, harsh, unforgiving, even bleak. But now stop and look at Ruth. She saw the harsh reality of life, but she still chose to remain faithful. And her faithfulness ultimately helped change the course of an entire nation. Look closely at the wilderness of Engedi. And then remember the promise of Ruth 1, 16 and 17 that took her through this journey. She made it by committing to remain faithful. And so can you. What a picture. And what encouragement. Thank you, Charlie. Hate to say it, but our time is gone. Love it when you stick with us for the broadcast. And you can always hear it again at thelandandthebook.org. The Land and the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.